Well, good morning, church. We are going to, before we look at God's word this morning, this event was just amazing once again. And what's so refreshing to me about On Goal, and it, it, it was same with this year, and it felt like even more so this year, was the involvement of the church. There were so many people involved and on goal this past week. It just blows me away as your pastor. It so excites me and thrills me to see whether it's hosting or dinners or showing up the picnic yesterday or doing things throughout the week. Thank you, church. You made it happen because without that, that doesn't happen uh, with on goal coaches. So uh, 115 students, I think, campers we had this past week. And uh, Austin's going to come up and share a little bit about what's... uh, you know, going on, what happened, how we can be praying for them as they go forward here. Um, and uh, so this is Austin. And Austin has this whole crew back there. And, um, and so the challenge for, for Austin this morning is that I'm limiting it to like one highlight. For, I'm not, that's not even fair. But you can do it. All right, one highlight from this past One and a half, maybe. Okay, two. Yeah, All right. Well, as, as he already mentioned, it was an exciting week. As you saw, we had... The most campers we've ever had here at Ong, or here in Laconia, over 115 campers. Um, you saw some of the highlights, uh, but really the highlight for us is sharing, sharing with kids how God is passionate for them, how much God loves them. That's what we did this week. Um, we had over 15 kids come forward um, to talk with our coaches about making a decision to follow Christ, and, and many of them did, did do that. So yeah, that was great. Um, we also had nearly 50 kids come to the encouragement group to really ask questions and to grow in their faith, which, which was awesome as well. Um, so those were the highlights, but I also just want to mention, as you did as well, that I was just um, kind of blown away this week by the, by the church, by you guys, just how much um, each and every one has done for us this week. This was my first time coming here. I've been working with Angola for a long time, but... Um, I was really blown away just by your guys' love for people and um, how it's making an impact on the community was really a blessing. So thank you guys so much. Awesome. So now on goal, on goal ministry, um, it's not, this is just one part of a lot that's going on throughout the summer. And so share with me some, something you're excited about with on goal ministry as a whole and how we can be praying for you, some challenges that might be there. Right. Yeah, thank you. So, as you mentioned, we have on goals going on all year round. We have a lot going on um, with our, we have a soccer club. We do camps all summer. We have other programs. Um, but one of the most exciting things we have right now is the continued development of our on goal soccer complex, which is in Milford, Ohio. Um, so we, the Lord has blessed us with an amazing property with tons of field space, um, several buildings on the property. Um, and this has been a huge answer to prayer, and it's also given us the ability to do even more um, in our community to really share Christ with people. Uh, so that's been a huge blessing. We're currently um, renovating our offices and our um, clubhouse for people to come in and spend time together. And we're also making some nice bathrooms for all the players and families to come use. So it's been a huge blessing. It comes with its challenges as well of just running a complex. Coach Tom can tell you all the work that goes into that. So you can pray for that as we continue to use that for the community. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to have the coaches and all the team there just stand up. I'm going to pray for you as we uh, close out this time. And they're going to be hitting the road here. So you're going to see a mass exodus here in a moment. They're going to let me pray first. 
All right, so I'm going to pray for you as you head off. You have five more camps, you said, and you're starting another one Tuesday this week? Yep. Okay, no, break, no breaks for you, none. All right, let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this ministry. I thank you for the heart behind this ministry. It's not just to pass on soccer skills. It's to pass on the love of Jesus, to pass on to these campers all throughout this country, Lord, of, about um, what it means to be loved by you, what it means to serve you, what it means to have uh, Jesus have come and, and died for them. And so I just pray, God, as these campers this week heard about that love, that they would take that with them into their homes. They would take that with them throughout this year. They would take that with them for years to come, that that which was hidden in their hearts, that you would water that, grow that, and it would bear fruit. And I pray for these, these, these uh, coaches, for this team of workers. God, I pray that as they go forward uh, for the rest of this summer, God, that you would give them strength that they need to carry on. I pray, God, that you would protect them on the many, many miles they travel. Keep them safe. Keep them unified under you. And God, I pray, God, that, that uh, this complex that, that's going on, that that would bring more and more people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I commit this ministry to you. Go before them, work in them, and through them, uh, that in all things you would be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Austin. Amen. Thank God bless you. All right. Yes, a thanks is, is in order. All right, as they head out, you can be turning your Bibles to Genesis 37. We're going to be looking at this in a moment. Genesis 37. And I hope that as we have sung, and even on the um, uh, video, though that's a backdrop of what we're going to be looking at today in Genesis 37 of, and all things, God works together for the good. That's what we're going to be talking about here. Well, it was a teddy bear massacre at the Wookiee Hole Caves, which is a teddy bear museum in Western England. In the summer of 2006, a Doberman Pinscher guard dog named Barney just went berserk. In an evening rage, Barney shredded about 100 of the teddy bears on display. But what really got everyone's attention was that he tore apart Mabel, which is Elvis Presley's teddy bear. Mabel is currently owned by an English aristocrat who lives close to the museum, and he had reportedly paid something like $75,000 for this teddy bear at a Memphis auction and then loaned it to Wookie Hole Caves. Well, the museum's general manager said, I had a very embarrassing phone call with the owner of that teddy bear. He's not very happy at all. Now, what would possess Barney the guard dog to become so angry, to go so violent? Well, the dog's trainer, Greg West, speculated that it could have been jealousy. Because according to West, I was there stroking Mabel the teddy bear and saying, what a nice little teddy bear she was. And off he went. At any rate, Wes spent several minutes chasing Barney before he could wrestle him to the ground in the end of uh, the canine's act of vengeance. And photos of the dog after he'd been, quiet, been quieted showed him uh, sitting and looking kind of contrite. 
Now, no dogs are now allowed at Wookiee Hole Caves, as you can imagine. But I ask the question, what are the triggers that send us in that kind of rage? What releases our anger and desire for revenge? Is it jealousy over the strokes someone else got? More importantly, who do we damage when we lose control? More than likely, it's something far more valuable than a $75,000 teddy bear. Well, that introduces us to a family poisoned by jealousy and marked by disharmony and chaos. Who can ever forget Winston Churchill's well-known words, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, we should fight in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills. And somebody added, that sounds exactly like our family vacation. Well, it sounded a lot like Joseph's family. So turn with me, if you're not there, to Genesis chapter 37, as we turn our attention today to a new sermon series. And, and the only consolation I have about going, to, going away from one series that I love is going to another one that I love. So here we are. I want to spend the next two months looking at the life of Joseph. Now, 25% of Genesis is devoted to Joseph. And the theme that runs through this series, and that we sang about this morning, is the providence of God. Now to speak of God's providence is to see how God takes ordinary events and arranges them. Providence is God's superintending of natural events for a predetermined outcome. Now as an important aside, miracle is different than providence. Miracle is different than providence. Miracle is when God intervenes in natural uh, law. Providence is where God utilizes natural law. There needs to be a distinction there. We can't call everything a miracle. It kind of, it kind of cheapens the word. It's when God intervenes in natural law. Providence is where God utilizes natural law. And as we look at Genesis 37 through 50, we won't see really any appearance of God or God speaking to anyone. We won't see in any obvious way God inserting himself into the story. But this is very much about God working. And so throughout our time looking at the man Joseph, let's not forget that it's a story of God. God is behind the scenes orchestrating the events. And that is how it is with us. We may not always see God openly intervening, but He is working in our lives. He's controlling the outcome of our decisions, the decisions of others, even sinful choices to bring His purposes to pass. It's all of the Master's design, God's design, as He weaves all things together for our good, and for His glory. The question is, can you trust God with all the threads? Can you trust God with all the threads? There are going to be many threads God weaves together to fulfill His purposes in Joseph's life. Our first thread from this morning's passage is the broken home. It's the thread of the broken home. The bottom line is this, the main point is this, just as God chooses a broken home to accomplish his purposes, he can transform what is broken in your life to a place of usefulness. Let me say that again. 
Just as God chooses a broken home to accomplish his purposes, he can transform what is broken in your life to a place of usefulness. That means a lousy upbringing. That means those disappointments in life. That means when you've been the victim of hate and jealousy. That means when life took that unexpected turn, God can transform what is broken in your life to a place of usefulness. It's all part of the master's design. And so as we work through the life of Joseph, let the story draw you in, even though it's a familiar one. And you'll be able to look at your own life differently. Well, we begin by looking at Genesis 37 this morning. And a key element to this true account is the tension between the father's favoring of Joseph and the hatred of Joseph's brothers. Now, brothers is used 21 times throughout this section here. And as we're going to see of this hatred of Joseph's brothers is it's a hatred that escalates. And so the biblical account picks up the story of Joseph when he was a teenager. Joseph is from what we would call a dysfunctional family. Listen, Joseph has three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one brother, and a stepsister all living in the home at the same time. And you thought it was rough in your house. (laughs) Well, it might be. We go from a new coat this morning to big dreams to a deep pit. All right, first of all, a new coat. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Now, in the bigger picture, this verse points us uh, to the main flow of thought for Genesis about the promised seed and the promised land of Canaan. Jacob is getting up there in years when Joseph was born to his great love, Rachel. Now, on the outside, Jacob's family looked well-established, stable, and prosperous. But there was something brewing inside, something that was about to blow the top off. And my mind goes to Mount St. Helens. Because back prior to May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens was a beautiful, snow-capped mountain in Washington State. It stood out substantially from surrounding hills because it rose thousands of feet above them and had a permanent cover of ice and snow. The peak rose more than 5,000 feet above its base. Nothing looked more stable than Mount St. Helens. And then it happened. Early in the morning on May 18, 1980, the mountain began spewing steam and gas and then it erupted from its north side. Hot pressured magma erupted and the ash plume reached a towering height of 80,000 feet before blanketing the surrounding area, completely destroying 230 square miles in a matter of minutes. The eruption was heard hundreds of miles away. Ash rained as far as Nebraska. It triggered the largest landslide ever recorded at that time. In its wake, one billion in damage was done and 57 people died. Now, the volcano lost an estimated uh, 3.4 billion billion, uh, cubic yards of its cone, leaving behind a horseshoe-shaped crater approximately one mile wide and two miles long. Changed the look completely. 
And as permanent, as great as that mountain was, inside there was something brewing that was about to blow the top off of the mountain. Well, in the same way, there was mounting pressure building up in Jacob's home. What was causing it? Well, look at verse 2. And, and verse 2 gives an overview of the situation. And then verse 3 will provide us with the explanation. Verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zippah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them. Now, some suggest that the phrase bad report in verse 2 is really better translated false report. It's a lie, or at least a misrepresentation of some kind, some would say. It's often used to speak of news that is slanted in order to ruin the victim. Well, I don't know what you think about that, but whether Joseph here is lying or at the very least, uh, young Joseph uh, is a pestering, tattletale little brother. And just because Joseph knew there were bad things to say about his brothers didn't mean he should have shared them. It just drove even a deeper wedge between Joseph and the brothers. Now, why all this tension between Joseph and his brothers? Well, we're now given the explanation as to what he just said in verse 2. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Now this makes sense. It's not surprising that there would be some unique a sense of affection for one born later in life and to the wife of your great lifetime love, Rachel. All his other sons were older, and then here comes this beautiful newborn. As one pastor put it, everyone loves a puppy. You have this nice dog that you love, and you've had this dog for years, and you come across this puppy, you're drawn to it. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. And there was this mounting pressure in the home because Jacob unwisely favored Joseph. He does nothing to hide the fact that Joseph was his favorite. The end of verse 3, we see Jacob putting his favoritism on display, for it says he made a richly ornamented robe for him, or others translate this, many colored, or a coat of many colors. And for years, that's really all I knew about the story of Joseph. He had a coat of many colors. But really, we should think of this as more of a robe than a coat that we might wear on a chilly day. A multicolored robe like this showed favored status. Many suggest this robe had something to do with royalty. It would be something a prince from a king would wear. So was Jacob suggesting by this special gift to Joseph that he was singling him out as the ruler of all his brothers? We don't know. But whatever is going on here, one thing's for sure. Jacob outlandishly favored Joseph in a way he did not do with his other sons. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. And so Joseph has this robe that he wore around his brothers that just made him hate him, made them hate him all the more. Now consider this as well. Think about it this way. How much menial work can you do and a long robe reaching to the ankles and to the wrists, as this robe was probably likely was. I mean, how much work can you do? It would be like me showing up to the on-goal picnic yesterday in a suko and tie. You'd go, I don't think you're ready to do much menial work, Pastor. Same thing. So he has this big, long robe on. And so, so he's kind of saying here, instead of doing the chores with his brothers, his role was to be more of supervising them. 
All right, you older siblings. How well would that settle with you as an older sibling being supervised by a younger one? Not going to go well for you or for him. Now, Joseph isn't off the hook here, but Jacob fed this. What 17-year-old could handle this? Jacob set Joseph up for failure, for misery. And verse 4 tells us that. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, or more literally, could not so much as greet him. They're not even going to say hi to the guy. And I think, wow, they must have had quite the family dinners. <laughs> I read of these two unmarried sisters who lived together, but because of their unresolved disagreement, they stopped speaking to each other. And since neither of them were willing to move out of their small house, they continued to use the same rooms, eat at the same table, use the same appliances, sleep in the same room, all separately without one word. A chalk line, literally, a chalk line divided the sleeping area into two halves, separating doorways as well as the fireplace. Each would come and go and cook and eat, sew and read, without ever stepping over into her sister's territory. Through the black of the night, each could hear the deep breathing of the other, but because both were unwilling to deal with their hatred, they coexisted for years in grinding silence. Have any imaginary chalk lines drawn? Oh, I'm not going to talk to that person. Oh, they're going to that? I'm not going. Giving someone the silent treatment because of some resentment or hate? Is there some unresolved disagreement harming your relationship with someone else? I urge you, deal with it. You may not be reconciled for it takes two people, but still deal with it in your own heart, in your own life. Don't just let it go. Don't let that hatred build. As Harry Emerson Fosdick put it, hating people is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. Joseph's the rat. And the hatred's about to burn down the house that Jacob built. The hatred's only going to get worse. And Dad, I'll have you know, seems oblivious, completely oblivious of the hatred he incites by his favoritism. Now you would think that Jacob of all people would know better. If you recall his upbringing that's recorded for us in Scripture, he grew up in a home where his father favored and preferred his brother Esau to him. Remember? We might say Jacob had dad issues. You would have thought that Jacob, feeling the loss of his father's love and the wounds from being second to his brother, would have been more sensitive to this. Instead, he repeats the sin of his father. He, history repeats itself. Listen, favoritism poisons families. Do you need to acknowledge any favoritism on your part? Or let's be more general than that. Have any of your children become an idol? Because like Jacob, good gifts of children can become the emotional center of our lives. And there, there is so much child-centered parenting today that in the end, it only harms the child. While things are getting bad in the home, the family's sitting on a power keg ready to explode. The Coke bottle has been shaken and it's about to be opened. And we go from the new coat to some 
big dreams. Some big dreams. Joseph's about to add fuel to the fire of hatred. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. See, their hatred escalates. It's not just that they're saying, do we really have to take Joseph with us? No, no, it's a lot worse than that. It's the lava that's about to blow the top off. Verse 6, Joseph said to them, listen, brothers, to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field. And by we meant they. They were doing the work. When suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. (laughs) Hey guys, hey brothers, listen to this. You'll all bow down to me. Isn't that cool? Now we might chalk it up to being 17 and a bit naive. It's just really hard for me to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt here. You You can work it out yourself. Joseph had to be somewhat aware that when he walked into this house, his brothers couldn't even say hi to him. They didn't say, they didn't say shalom. He had to notice that at the dinner table, one of his brothers would say, Hey, Dad, can you have Joseph, your favorite one over there, pass me the gravy? Huh. Hey, hey, Dad, can, do you know, can you tell Joseph, because I'm not speaking to him, but can you tell Joseph that he left the lantern on in his room? I mean, Joseph is either totally unaware of how bad things are or completely insensitive or even a bit arrogant. He certainly is underestimating the power of his words. The brothers have already resented Joseph and Joseph did not have to tell them his dream. That's what I think. He had a dream. He should have kept quiet about it. Here's the principle. There are some things that if you know that you just keep quiet about. There are some things if you, that if you know, you just keep quiet about. Joseph doesn't quite get it. He has a second dream, it tells us in verse 9. Now this dream includes his mom and dad, and it's the whole family bowing down to Joseph. Again, there are some things that if you know, you just keep quiet about. Joseph doesn't, and we read this reaction, verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him. We're now given the root of the problem. Jealousy. Now if you you did your homework this past week and you read 1 Corinthians 13, you see love is not jealous or envy, but it's really jealous there. How many families are fractured because of jealousy? How many friendships are ruined because of jealousy? What hurt has been caused in the church family over flat-out jealousy? We say it's not that. We say it's something else. But if you get to the root of it, it just might be jealousy. Oh, why did he get all the credit when I did all the work? Jealousy. Oh, look how she flaunts her beauty. I bet it took her all morning to look like that. Right? Oh, it serves them right with all the money they have. Think it, may not say it. And when you're jealous, the one you hurt is yourself. There's a Greek story that tells us of a statue that was erected in honor of a famous athlete. This statue took a position of prominence in the Greek city. 
A rival athlete was so jealous of the success and triumph of his competitor, he couldn't even stand to look at the statue. His jealousy got so bad that he vowed to destroy the statue. And so each night, the jealous athlete would take his hammer and his chisel, and he'd begin to chip away at the foundation of this statue. Night after night, he'd go out, chip away, chip away. Night after night, the foundation grew weaker and weaker and weaker, and he finally weakened it enough, and it brought the statue down. But it fell on him, crushing him to his death. Jealousy. It's a killer. And the one it destroys is you. Do you struggle with jealousy? Where does it show up in your life? It shows up in mine. And I used to be terribly jealous, particularly when I was dating my wife and then early on in my marriage. Terribly jealous. And not the right kind of jealousy. The wrong kind that left me paranoid and overly suspicious, untrusting, and making mountains out of molehills. And it was wrong. You see, when a reaction is disproportionate to the wrong committed, jealousy is likely the root issue. And jealousy is everybody's problem. We all must be honest and admit it, it, that, that, that the reaction brewing inside of me is because I am jealous that you received praise and I didn't. You were promoted and I was overlooked. Life seems to be going well for you and mine isn't. And I am jealous. You see, jealousy can't stand it when others are doing better than we are. You might have heard the story. A businessman was walking along the beach one day and he found a bottle. A genie popped out. And said, I'm not doing this three-wish thing. You only get one wish. But whatever you wish for, he said, it will be given double to the one you're jealous of the most. So whatever you wish for will be given double to the one you're jealous of the most. Well, he had this predicament, and he thought for a moment. He said, okay, I wish to be blind in one eye. (laughs) See how bad it gets? We might smile at that, but you see how bad? Jealousy makes us do insane things. We don't even think right. Jealousy destroys the jealous person. It eats you up. So I ask you, do you need to address any jealousy in your life? Will you admit that the anger brewing inside of you is a result of some jealousy on your part? Can you accept that God sovereignly does things in people's lives as He so chooses. Here's another principle. God does not treat us all the same. God does not treat us all the same. He does not give us all the same gifts, all the same blessings, all the same road to travel. He doesn't treat us all the same. Can you accept that? Oh, they just seem to be getting all all the breaks over here. I get nothing. Can you accept that from a sovereign God? He's good. He's got you. Can you accept that? See, if Joseph's brothers would have understood that, it would have saved them from this terrible jealousy and hatred. And really their issue is with the father, but they took it out on Joseph, right? So we go from the new coat to the big dreams, now to the deep pit. 
deep pit. And we're going to leave things this morning with Joseph in the pit. That's not really fair, but that's where we're going to end. But I want us to see what led up to it. So look at verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Now, Shechem, by the way, is about 50 miles north from where they were living in Hebron. What happened in Shechem? This is important to note this. About two years earlier, Jacob's daughter, uh, Joseph's uh, sister, and the brother's sister, Dinah, was raped in Shechem. She was raped in Shechem. Simeon and Levi, two of Joseph's brothers, were furious and they committed mass murder. They looted the city. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children. You can read about it. Genesis chapter 4, 34. Genesis chapter 34. And Jacob at that time, he had to flee in a hurry because things were about to get worse. Now about two years have passed and Jacob sends his boys back to Shechem. He still owns a piece of property back there. And it seems, and it's speculative, it seems as though Jacob might be having second thoughts about sending them back there, that that maybe there's still this bad blood between the Shechemites and Jacob's family. So, he sends Joseph in his fancy, nice coat to go see how things are going. I don't know what Jacob was thinking, or if he's thinking at all. Did he really figure this was going to end well? Did he not understand the danger of sending his favored son to check in on his brothers who were seething with hatred? Or was he just kind of going, oh, you know, this is just typical sibling rivalry. I know they don't speak to Joseph and they're really upset about the code I gave them and and they've had it with his dreams, but they don't really hate Joseph. So Joseph, you you go, you'll be fine. And Joseph says, very well, and he goes. Now listen, Jacob knew of the great tension in the home. But as is the case in many homes today, particularly with dads, there was parental passivity. Oh, that's just the way we are in this family. Watch out for that. Passivity is lethal, and it's out of control today. I want you to notice with me back in verse 11, the last few words there. What does it say of Jacob the father? It says of the jealousy of the brothers. What does it say of Jacob the father that what? He kept the matter in mind. What does that mean? It meant he did nothing. Perhaps he should have done a little more than just keep the matter in mind. See, there are times we must do more than just keep the matter in mind. Shouldn't he have done something? Shouldn't he have intervened? I mean, he sends Joseph like a lamb to be slaughtered here. And little did Jacob know that as Joseph walked out the door that day, it'd be the last time he would see him for 20 years. Joseph leaves. He arrives in Shechem, and he can't find his brothers. You can read about it. As I mentioned earlier, we mustn't miss Throughout our time in this study, the sovereign hand of God weaving the threads together. This is all of God's design. For instance, Joseph is wandering around in Shechem. Now get this. And he happens to bump into some stranger who just a few days prior happened to hear a group of guys say that they were going to Dothan. And that was his brothers. And so Joseph's going to go off and 
find his brothers, and you're about to see what happens when hatred and jealousy go unchecked. You're about to see an eruption of pent-up resentment because the brothers go into attack mode. And if it weren't for the older brother, Reuben, who was just really just saving his own neck, the brothers would have killed Joseph, but instead they throw him into this deep pit, a cistern, a, a, a well. Now, a bit of irony here is that the rejected brother Joseph would be the one who would save his family. We're going to come to that. But it sounds a lot like our Savior. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53 says, a man of sorrows, and he was familiar with suffering. Isaiah goes on to speak of the suffering servant, Jesus, and he says, he took up our infirmities, he carried our sorrows, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Jesus was handed over by God's set purpose and with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In the same way, Joseph is about to be thrown into a deep pit by wicked men. Listen, it's all according to God's set purpose. God is doing something with this thread of a broken home. Just as God chooses a broken home to accomplish his purposes, listen, he can transform what's broken in your life to a place of usefulness. Can you trust him with all the threads? John Ortberg creates this scenario. He says, imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read in this script that you'll have a learning disability in elementary school. Reading which comes easily for some kids will be laborious for her. In high school, she'll make a great circle of friends and one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she'll get into her preferred college, but while there, she'll lose a leg in a car accident. Following that, she'll go through a time of depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then go through the grief of separation. With a script of your child's life in your hands and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? Any parent would. But if you could erase, Ortberg says, if you could erase every failure, every disappointment, every period of suffering, would that really be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crises and trauma to reach the full potential of development and growth. Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. He ends by saying this, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. 
God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. Can I believe that? I kick against it an awful lot. God can be trusted. He has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for this church. He's producing the church. He's producing the me he wants. And his plan is the very best for us, for he is good and upright. That is our confidence. Can we trust him with the threats? Let's pray. God, and even as I'm speaking it, really is easier said than done. We can give lip service to it. I can say, yes, I trust him with the threads. And then when that's a dark thread, then I'm not so sure. My trust can't be in the circumstances. My trust is in a good God who always does what is right and good and fair and, 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 and right. He always does what is best, even more so than fair. He'll always work all things together for the good. God, help us to trust that. Help us to give him all our threads. Packed with emotions. Packed with our own feelings about it. But still be able to give them to you. As you work out your plan in us. May we learn so much about Joseph, but more importantly, may we learn more about you and this broken home hero that points to you. Help us to see that as we continue in our study in Jesus' name. Amen.